back at Theology on Mission podcast, where theology meets the issues of culture for mission. Mike Moore, I don't know, this is the first time we've had Chaz, our new audio engineer. Are you kind of scared right now that you might lose your job? Uh, yeah. I think I did lose my job. I gave it away to Chaz. Oh, dude, I got news for you. You didn't give it away. Yeah, he took it. Uh, you were pulled. You you were cut. <laughs> That's right. I got supplanted by a superior person. Uh, I, I just want to, on behalf of Theology on Mission Podcast, Northern Seminary, thank you for the years of service as audio engineer plus everything else you do. There are a few people yeah. who could have done it, but uh, to uh, be honest, uh, it wasn't your thing. <laughs> was not my strong suit. <laughs> Anyways, here we are, season nine. Uh, we are on the second tranche, and I'm so excited that we actually got uh, Chaz with us. Chaz, do you want to say a word? I mean, we're not going to let you talk very much because it's, it's kind of a lot uh, allowed in podcast protocol land, but do you want to say a few words? Sure. Just grateful to be here. You know, this is uh, always fun. Okay, that's enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I said too much already. Too much already. <laughs> we'll see if I stick around. But, but, but anyways, no, we're we're grateful to have you, and uh, we've over the years we've we've grown used to feel. Uh, I was going to say theological glitches, which we have uh, grown used to, but also technological glitches, and uh, we expect at least the latter to be uh, fixed through your presence. And I think you're going to help us theologically yeah, too. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest. All the way from, is it Boise, Idaho? That's it. That's it. You got it. Oh, I got it right. Preston Sprinkle, writer, author, Theology in the Raw podcaster, Exiles in Babylon conference coming up here shortly. He'll tell us when. But uh, he is also the author of many books, but he's author of a new book, which we're really excited to talk about, Exiles, the Church in the shadow of empire. Dr. Preston Sprinkle, by the way, doctorate from uh, somewhere in Scotland, isn't it? Or, Aberdeen, Aberdeen right? University in Scotland, yeah. All right, yeah. that doesn't count. Is that Presbyterian? <laughs> it's uh, It predates the Presbyterians. It was founded in 1490, oh. so... <laughs> okay, that's good, because if it was Presbyterian, uh, we, and we'd have a problem. No, we wouldn't. Um, Welcome to the podcast. Uh, finally, we have you on. Uh, tell us about this book. Uh, the, give us first just a little yeah. bit of the main idea of the book. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a great honor to talk to the great Fitch. Uh, this is long overdue. Um, uh, the, okay, so the book is basically, if I can summarize it as concisely as I can, is a um, I would say an accessible uh, biblical theology of a political identity. So most of it's just Bible, going through the Bible, and how did looking at how did the people of God <laughs> think of themselves um, against the backdrop of various nations and empires that they were living under? Like, um, how did they think through various political questions in light of um, the empires they're living under? So um, it's it's eighty mm. percent Bible. It's not uh, you know I, I refer to it you know generally is my my politics book you know and people think i'm you know talking about voting and trump and biden and all this stuff. It's, like, it's not it's more prolegomena i think for how should christians today especially christians living under what i would call an, an empire um how should christians today draw on the resources from scripture 
um, from from many texts that uh, you know are very relevant to what it's like to live under the empire and how should we even what kinds of even theological questions should we mm -hmm. ask as we interact with the political discourses today? So that's the All, gist of the book. Um, yeah. And I think that's so helpful because uh, uh, the, the question is these days, uh, do we start with the Bible or do we start with politics or, or how the two shall meet? Uh, you say in your book, this is not a political mm. theology. Uh, it's a biblical theology. Uh, have I got that right? But describe, like, describe the relationship between, yeah. like, like those of us in political theology, and I count myself as one. Uh, we're always trying to see how the two interrelate. How how do you relate the Bible and politics in this book? Yeah, that's good. I'm yeah, I'm glad you picked out that distinction. I think most people probably passed over that part. I, you know, that distinction between me saying I'm not doing political theology, I'm doing biblical studies or biblical theology, um, is really to give honor to people who are in the discipline of political theology. That is, as you know, a very distinct discipline. Um, you know, people like Oliver O'Donovan and Hauerwas and other people like that that have lived in that world and interacted with other theologians in that space for a long, long time. I have not done that. I've read several books in political theology, um, but really political theology is done by theologians. And as you know, as an from an academic perspective, there's a big difference between people doing theology and biblical studies. And so I'm coming at these questions from the perspective of biblical studies. So, so there's obviously an intersection there. Um, I think political theologians do biblical studies. Um, you know, you read, I just, I'm in, in the middle of reading Oliver O'Donovan and he's got a lot of stuff, you know, on, on the Bible. He's not, he's not, not reading the Bible, you know, but even though his approach to that is almost like, he begins with different questions, a different lens. Um, it's just a different kind of side of maybe the same coin. So again, I, I would consider my book maybe a prolegomena from a biblical studies perspective to political theological discourse might be, I'm just making that up on the fly. Yeah, but that, that might yeah. be a better way to situate it. And I really do think that we as, I say we as pastors, because uh, I consider myself a pastor, uh, we got to learn how to lead our congregations from the scriptures to ask the right questions about politics. And that's what I think you're doing in this book. And you're doing it in a way, folks, uh, Preston's doing it in a way that's accessible, readable, understandable, not like Oliver O'Donovan, who, frankly, uh, I have to read two or three times just to figure out what the blankety blankety <laughs> saying. I can't uh, understand half of what I'm reading, but I'm, I have to read them because if you're entering this conversation, you have to know O'Donovan. I'm like, I don't know if after reading his book five times, I'll know O'Donovan, but at least I can say I read it. But okay, no. okay. Before we <laughs> go bashing on on the great Oliver O'Donovan anymore, um, uh, okay. So I, I, I I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the swirl that was going on in my head as I was reading your book. Uh, uh, it's something like this, uh, dude. It sure sounds like he's become an Anabaptist. I go, oh, praise the Lord! We have an evangelical who finally got saved and has become an Anabaptist. And you're you're reading people that uh, those of us in this particular neo-Anabaptist world. Kavanaugh, Howard, Was, Williman, even Mike Gorman's book, Reading Re Revelation. I, I think it's an Anabaptist. Mike, if you're listening, you're an Anabaptist. You better, you better come forward quickly and and take up the mantle. But have you made a turn here 
in your theology? Can you talk a little bit well, about that? Well, my I um, how, how I would explain it like this. Mm -hmm. I I I I was raised John MacArthur kind brand of kind of reformed ish dispensationalist conservative. One might even say fundamentalist evangelicals. So that that's the air I breathe in my Christian upbringing. I sort of left that uh, or got left by that uh, crowd fairly early on and then kind of wandered into just kind of no man's land theologically. So I'd, I don't have an ecclesial tradition. I, I, I do. I swim in many different circles, but I, but I haven't like, I haven't been like influenced directly by a certain ecclesial tradition. My theology truly is from a biblical study, hodgepodge reading different people. But I would say it's been over a decade since people have called me an Anabaptist, theologically at least. Like I, I don't go to an Anabaptist church, uh, but whenever I read Anabaptist, I feel extremely at home. Like when, it, when I read Hauerwas, it was after I read biblical studies people like, like Gorman and, and Yoder and, and McKnight and other people and Renty Wright and other people that's kind of building the framework. And then when I go read Anabaptist, I'm like, oh, yeah, I think that's super biblical. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I, uh, I would feel out of honor to Anabaptist, I would hesitate calling myself one just because I don't have the, the, uh, my feet firmly planted in that ecclesial space. Uh, but theologically, I would absolutely say I'm, I'm Anabaptist. Yeah, theology, or specifically theology of church and culture, <laughs> yes. it appears like you're leaning uh, Anabaptist ways, I feel— that the Anabaptist movement and the neo-Anabaptist movement within evangelicalism, and I'll I'll include Greg Boyd in that, I'll include McKnight yeah. in that, I'll include Fitch in that, but mm. I'll include Zahn, Brian Zahn mm. in that, even though Brian, sure. for the same reasons you, yeah. he won't say I'm an Anabaptist, but why? Because I don't go to an Anabaptist church. Well, that has almost nothing to do with what I'm talking about. It, there's a political approach yes. to the way we live amidst nation states and the way we think about the power and presence of God that makes us Anabaptist. I'm thinking you're turning, and, and okay, I, my question is this. Mike Moore's saying, when are you going to let me talk? When are you going to let me talk? Please, <laughs> when are you going to let me talk? So right after this question, Mike, you're on, you're, you're there. But my question is, I think evangelicalism uh, is caught up. This is maybe going to aggravate some of my best friends out there. It's caught up Yo. in the absorption <laughs> of power, and it's worldly power, and it's you're fine. This, you're this good. has led us to Trump, um, but it's also everywhere in in the mix. In it's in the water we swim in, the air we breathe, um, and so neo Anabaptist thought is marginalized in evangelical. Evangelicals can't get it, and when I read your book, I'm thinking, oh man, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the person who's going to help us get in there, because I don't know if there's another way to get out of the mess evangelicalism is in right now yeah. without a neo-Anabaptist approach to post-Christendom, post-church-state relationships, etc. Comment yeah. on that, and then Mike Moore will quit staring at me going, okay? Well, I, I yeah, I think there's something to that, and, and it might be because I do speak the language, breathe the air, have the background of your traditional conservative, non-denominational kind of brand of evangelicalism, which is very biblical studies centered, you know, show me from the text of scripture, they say, um, if, if you come at, if you try to convert <laughs> evangelicals to Anabaptists by coming at them heavy and hard with a lot of Anabaptist kind of 
language, that, that might not be as effective if you just go to sound exegesis from the, say, the book of Revelation or First Peter, the rest of the Bible, <laughs> um, you know, and build it from the ground up. I mean, I, I almost, um, I don't know if it was deliberate, but I almost didn't want to use categories like that that p- could possibly be distracting. I truly want to say, I'm not trying to impose on the text uh, this ecclesiology, that ecclesiology. I'm not, you know, even some some people called me a biblical anarchist. Um, and I'm like, well, I, I, okay, whatever, call me whatever you want. Uh, if, if that's what I am, that's what I am. Um, but I think that term would probably create a wedge from people who would might otherwise be sympathetic to my reading of scripture if I start using those categories. So, um, mm. yeah, yeah, it's, I, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, um, I wrote a book 10 years ago on uh, defending nonviolence. Um, yes. But, you know, I came at it from a very, like I was, I came at it from a, a very, like almost like my reformed tradition, lowercase r reformed tradition led me there. <laughs> like I believe that the cross of Christ is so powerful and King Jesus is so sovereign that we don't need to use violence to defeat evil. Like, you know, so I come at it almost from a different like speaking the language that people might understand um, and, and a very heavy, just, you know, following John MacArthur's exegetical strategies. Like, yeah, I think love your enemies should be taken literally. Just like you guys are all in the literal interpretation. Let's go, let's go there. You know? So, <laughs> right, um, right. so yeah, I don't know, maybe I could be the Pied Piper to lead people into the dark side. Of Anabaptism. <laughs> <laughs> well, dark well, side. I think we've all heard the story of the last, I don't know, year where the preacher gets up and starts preaching the Sermon on the Mount and, and the congregation comes up to him and says, when did you turn into this yeah. liberal? Come on, <laughs> you need to get out of here. We need, you know, so, uh, uh, yeah, Mike Moore, uh, I know I'm, I'm looking at your face right now and I'm thinking, what's going on? <laughs> oh, Maybe, well, yeah. yeah, we'll find out here in a second. Yeah. I, okay. I, I'm, I, I'm curious, Preston, what kind of, what kind of response do you get from Christians, um, as you're telling the, telling them that they're exiles. Because mm. I think that a lot of Christians in America probably don't identify as exiles. Or some Christians maybe overly identify with it, take on mm. a martyrdom complex, that they're exiled and that the culture is against them. Yes. So w- w- what are some of the challenges that you've found as you're trying to explain this project to people who are in the church leading yeah. congregations? Well, the two misunderstandings I get are two that you just mentioned. Um, the one... Yeah would be more from like right-wing Christianity that considers themselves exiles. And it, it's that, you know, the culture's against us and, you know, Democrats are running this place. And mm-hmm. it almost has a subtle Christian nationalistic kind of like, woe is me, we're being oppressed. And what's the answer? Well, we need to like, you know, flex our muscles and win the culture war and not, they want to not become exiles. They, they want to become in positions yeah. of power. So I clarify, I hope I clarified it well, that that is precisely not what I'm arguing for at all. Um, the other, I think, misunderstanding is that I'm arguing for some kind of like separatist position that if you're living in exile, you just you don't care about you have no civic involvement. No, I think this is the critique, the wrong. I think the misunderstanding that Anabaptists get from my perspective. I mean, I see people, I think, misrepresent Hauerwas all the time on this, that, you know, you just sort of remove yourself from society, hunker down, protect your holiness. Mm-hmm. And it's like that's just, again, precisely not that the, the question is not should we be civically involved, but how? Um, yeah. And this is where I think Howard Ross is dead on, that the church is the vehicle, the political ent- the political community by- through which we want to engage the world, you know? So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah those are the two big misunderstandings, and I, I do hope I clarify that. I definitely clarify that by the end of the book, but uh, when I use the yeah. phrase exiles, that's usually what comes up, like, 
well, you're not loving your neighbor because you're not voting for or against Trump or something. You know, like, well, okay, let's mm-hmm. read the book and you'll see that that's not even the right question to ask. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can, can, can I press you even more on that? Sure, so, yeah. in in Boise, what does like an exile church look like in Boise, Idaho? Or I don't, I don't know if we have one. On it. I mean, I <laughs> <laughs> all right, church plant. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I um no we um Boise is. Idaho in general is very conservative, um, probably 70% Trump voting, you know, uh, the church, I would say the church is here. The Christian culture here would tend to be that first kind of exile, like where the Christians are being oppressed by this liberal society kind of thing. Um, so, uh, or the, you know, I, I would say maybe some of the younger churches might just have the more disinterest in, in political stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, which isn't, I'll take that over the former, but I, I, um, even that's not quite what I'm arguing for, but, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. The Christian culture here is it's, it's its own, it's its own bird. I mean, it's, yeah. (laughs) Idaho is like Texas with mountains basically. So that's good. I don't know if that's going to offend Idahoans or Texans more. (laughs) Okay. Chaz, you might want to cut that last comment out in the edit. (laughs) Um, well, that's not, that's just an observation. It's not even, I'm not, that's not pro or con. It's just the culture. I've been to Texas many times and it's like, there's a yeah. lot of similarities, you know? <laughs> well, well, I can't wait to have a, uh, next time we're in the same vicinity because I'd like to talk to you about, uh, Oliver O'Donovan and, and Jamie K. Smith. Uh, yeah, I want you, yeah. I want to steer away from those dudes and I want to go more towards Howard Wass, Boyd, okay. McKnight, Zond. Uh, and, and you come out of this whole thing. Uh, with three uh, options, folks. Now, if you're listening, we're going to get real here. Uh, detachment. This is, I think, the second to last chapter, if I recall. Detachment, which kind of like feels like Rod Dreyer's Benedict option a little bit. Yeah. Uh, transformation, which feels a little bit more like Niebuhr, uh, maybe H. Richard. Uh, you know, Protestantism in, in its old forms of the 1950s. And then we have prophetic witness, which for me is Hauerwas, is community-based, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, and I'm, this is why I think your explanations here can really help a lot of people out there uh, in sorting out how we're going to be a politic in the world for the gospel. Can you go through this detachment, transformation, prophetic sure. witness, and help us understand more about where you land and trying to lead us in these these directions, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. That that's uh, that was that was one of the harder chapters, right? Because this is where I do start to wander into more traditional political theology, and um, you know, I I guess the first thing I want to say is, and I said at the intro of that chapter that you know that's not the first chapter; it's second to last for a reason. Like it's almost like if my prior whatever eight chapters read, if my reading of scripture is more or less accurate then how should we, you know, think through how to apply it? I think a lot, I bring that up just because I think a lot of people begin with these kind of categories, develop their opinion, and then go back and say, well, see, because Romans 13 or because, what you know, they, they go back to the text of Scripture. I just want to reverse that process. Um, yeah, so detachment, you know, you, you kind of remove yourself from society. The, the classic punching bag for this would be, you know, the Amish, whatever. And I think I think that's probably not, I don't know, that that might, might may or might be a accurate representation but but somebody that's just like you know we need to hunker down remove ourselves from society guard our purity you know you see some of this in conserve in, in kind of 
conservative evangelicalism with kind of maybe a homeschool only and Christian only this and Christian only that and Christian music. And you kind of are, you know, um, remove yourself from society. But even there, the, the underlying motivation is like, because we really wish we could be in control. So even there, some of the more right-wing conservative brands of that, I think, tend to be a little more transformationist in, in, in practice. Um, yeah, the transformation view, I would say that would, seems to be more the majority that people want to change, not just society, well, society, uh, culture, um, and even politics uh, for, for good. And I would say this applies equally to the people who are um, you know, foaming at the mouth Trump supporters and foaming at the mouth Trump critics. Like they're still want the people in power to be of a certain viewpoint because they want the, the nation state to look a certain way. So I, I, in my opinion, I mean, I, in anecdotal experience, I think that's probably the majority of people. So that's the view that I really uh, wanted to interact with. And I would put maybe like a Jamie Smith and O'Donovan as kind of a, maybe a, a, a very much more nuanced kind of view of that the prophetic so i, I end up landing on the prophetic witness and, and I, I try to be very cautious with all that i don't want to get over my skis you know speaking about stuff that I, I i don't know too much about but i do advocate for this you know prophetic witness perspective to where it just kind of it's it's not i it's for being seeking the good of the city being a uh, speaking truth to power, uh, doing what MLK did, you know, doing what other activists might do, but they go about it in a way that is still, I think, separate from getting too entangled with the empire. Um, and that, that would be my first, you know, I give several kind of reasons why I think this approach is, or, you know, I give several critiques of the transformation view. That would be my probably my number one critique when I read Smith, when I read O'Donovan, when I read people that have a, a, a more, you know, they appreciate Harawas, um, they 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 glean a lot of things from that kind of more Anabaptist approach, but ultimately they are more on the transformation side. My number one critique when I read those works is I just I feel like they they don't take seriously enough a theology of of empire, um, specifically from the Book of Revelation, when it comes right out and says that the beast has been co-opted by the dragon, <laughs> and not just the first century beast, but any beast-like empire of which in our world today, the United States comes as close as any, um, that there is there there are deep-seated evil things at work here. Doesn't mean everything the empire does is bad, you know? Um, but it does mean at the end of the day, our political identity is fundamentally different from and even at odds than our identity in the empire. So, um, yeah, I guess that just even having that kind of suspicion when you think about political engagement, that will almost... I don't know. I, I that puts me in a different camp than people who would advocate for more transformation. Um, there's a lot more I could say about that, but let me pause and see if you want to jump on something or clarify. Or well, you know, uh, you quote Stanley Hauerwas quite a bit, and uh, I don't know, uh, channeling Stanley a little bit. Can I do my imitation, Mike? Moore? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, do it. Dave, the church is a politic. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. the church itself. Yeah. We've got to see the church itself, the body, the social reality of his lordship in a neighborhood, in a town, a city, as the beginning point mm -hmm. of establishing a politic. But I always thought yeah. um, that Stanley had a problem quite described, like he was very, he's, he's very uh, adamant that this is an active, engaged 
witness, prophetic witness, mm. as you call it. Witness means that we got to have a way of life that gives witness to who is Lord and how he works and changes social realities and relationships. But it's prophetic in that it engages a culture which uh, needs to be uh, corrected from sin and entanglements. And um, so, but I always thought, how do we get there? Yeah. What do we do? Like, Stanley, can you help us understand? It's a, it's a great idea, but uh, I just don't know how this works. And that's kind of where I spent the most part of my thing, trying to sort out yeah. how Stanley Hauerwas can be practical. Um, but um, <clears throat> yeah, so, so my question is, like, how do we not turn into Rod Dreyer's Benedict option where we go hide in a hole and, and sort out our life until Jesus comes? Kind of like what the old evangelical fundamentalists used to do. Mm-hmm. The world's going to hell. It's, we're going to have an Armageddon. And then, and then, and then so we got to go hunker down. We'll throw a few life rafts out to people, pull them out of the world. How, what's your yeah. strategy? Do you have one? How do you think through that problem? Uh, that's a great question, and and you're kind of wrestling with the you didn't use this exact term, but the critique that Harawas sometimes gets that I think is actually a good one to wrestle with, and I don't know the answer is that it, it is more idealistic. Like the church should embody you know uh, an economic uh, immigration and multi-ethnic reconciliation and 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 all these all these political values that we invest in the state or draw from the state or want the state to do. It's like the church has all the resources to embody the very politic mm. we're advocating for. And I agree with that on paper. <laughs> um, and I do use some examples of the book where I, I have seen examples of churches doing this very thing. I use an example of churches addressing gun violence in South, South Chicago, um, uh, some churches at the border, you know, embodying uh, what I would say a kingdom ethic of immigration um, and other things. So I, th- I think we have examples of it, um, but it is, I think the critique is valid that it's like, okay, w- but in reality, like what church is actually doing this or what network of churches is actually embodying, um, God's politic in a way that it should. And, and yeah, that's a, I think I have some examples, but unfortunately I wish I had more. Um, you, my, sorry, my, I, you, 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 I, I don't think I hit your question right on. Can you, can you reword your question? Cause I think I'm dancing around a little bit. Uh, um, no, I think you're hitting it right on. How, okay. how does the strategy of prophetic okay. witness, yeah. which depends on a community engage the world at large. Um, <clears throat> I wrote this book, faithful presence about 10 years ago, where that's yeah. all I was trying to do was trying to sort out uh, for Stanley. Stanley, I know you're not listening, but if you were, I love you, man, you've taught me everything. You've been like, you know, uh, I, I, I don't want to gush too much right now, but, but, but how do we do this? Is yeah. the big struggle. Do, do you have any particular insights yeah. that this that exiles your book can help us with? Well, that I guess um, going back to my kind of description of my book as more prolegomena to political discourse, I think the fundamental thing we would need to do is be convinced that we need to do this. <laughs> you know, like, um, and I'm hoping that my book could at least. Uh, challenge churches to see their community not as a um, a place for you know and weekly church services, which I'm not saying that's good or bad, but but to to be this political identity to explore creative ways where our individual communities and network of communities can embody you know uh, the political vision that I think the Bible lays out. So I so I guess for me it's 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 more of an intellectual first step of. If we're utterly convinced the Bible is advocating for this, then then I feel like my job's kind of my 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 end goal, my very limited goal, uh, will have been accomplished. Now it's like, okay, what's 
you know, 2.0, what, what do we do? <laughs> what is, okay, we're convinced. Yeah. And now what do we do? Honestly, I, I, that's where I'm wandering into uh, kind of no man's land a bit. But again, I do, you know, I, I, I think there's examples. Um, I, you know, there's an example I just said just the other day of abortion. Um, and I, I do daringly kind of bring that up at the end of the book um, that in the mindset of most Christians, you know, instituting laws, say, against abortion, that is a win and we won. And that's it. Like if you can if we can make abortion illegal in the country, then I think many Christians would say our political task is done. And I want to flip that coin around a little bit and say, well, let's look at the conditions that lead to abortion. Um, 50% of people who get an abortion are Christians um, who don't think it's morally right to get an abortion. And uh, if you actually ask them why they got an abortion, it largely has to do with the profound shame they would face of having a kid out of wedlock. I just talked to a woman the other day. I was her 19 years old and her boyfriend were just like, the shame we'll face in our church is worse than the guilt we'll face by by having an abortion. Mm-hmm. That That's, yep. you talk to, Again, you talk to 50% of women to get abortion who are Christians, they're going to say probably the exact same thing. Or it's, I'm 15 years old. I can't afford a child. I've just graduated junior high. A couple, you know, like I don't. Um, so could the church actually provide resources f- so that people can feasibly choose life and not, not, not abortion? So, so that, that it's those kind of conversations, I think, um, are exciting to me, really. Like, like, just not limiting our political imagination to who we're voting for or not voting for, what law we're voting for or not voting for, which may, and th- th- those may be good things. I'm not saying they're not, um, but those are very limited in, in actually um, accomplishing, you know, a better political vision than, you know, that we actually could if we actually tap into what you're saying, Fitch, that the church is itself is a body politic. That is this. By the way, I read that section and I, I thought, man, you're you're opening up a great conversation. Uh, not not many people realize uh, in, in when, when we're absorbed in the power structures of the empire, they think all we have to do is get the law changed and everything will change. But but, you know, Dred Scott, uh, 150 years ago or so, mm-hmm. uh, was saying that um, a free state had to uh, uh, send slaves back to the non-free state according to the law. And, and the free state was already socially, morally saying, no, slavery is wrong. And there was a rebellion and it led to the Civil War. You can't you can't enforce a morality, even if it's the wrong one hmm. or the right one upon a people without the social groundwork of the kingdom of God that changes people's minds, hearts, relationships and souls. And that's the work of the church. And it's just so inadequate or limited to uh, enforce uh, pro-life uh, through legislation. It has yeah. to be so much more. So, folks, uh, so I'm, uh, we we got to wrap this up soon. So, Preston, I'm going to go through like five or six of those uh-huh. suggestions you make in that last chapter. Can you give us three or four sentences on each one? We've already talked. He, he, folks, he has a, a, a last chapter, Living as Exiles, and he makes some suggestions. And it's a start on the road to something mm-hmm. where we can be a different kind of people in our culture. So we've already talked about abortion. Talk about the way politics divides the church. What's the solution or the, the conversation you're shooting for with that? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I tease out some real practical stuff. The first one I jump into is, is abortion, kind of kind of just open up our minds, like we just talked about, of, of how can we think through that question from from a holistic Christian perspective. The second one has to do with political parties and 
And here's where I, you know, I want to make a distinction between what, um, that's, that's actually a friend of mine says, uh, make a distinction between a, a, a lean and a bow, meaning, you know, you have certain political leanings. You, you look at a political party and, and there might be certain values that you're like, yeah, I resonate with those values more than some of these values advocated by this party. You know, that might be a lean. I think we're all going to have that naturally. And I don't think those are necessarily bad things. So, sometimes I do want us to be a little more suspicious over whether how much in these political parties these people are actually are these deep-seated values that they're going to take a bullet for or is it at the end of the day have to do with um power and staying in office and voter base and all that stuff so part of me does you know when i hear people on both sides talk about their passion for this justice issue or this value i'm like yeah maybe <laughs> i mean i don't know <laughs> but anyway that that aside let's just take it you know at the you know good good faith that you know um uh, uh that Trump really does care about, you know, unborn life and, and, you know, he's not using that to win votes or whatever, but, um, I, um, I'm, I'm susp okay. So, so the lean, we're all going to have leanings. The bow is this allegiance to a political party. And I just want to, I want people to, again, be more vigilant at seeing the many powerful ways in which these political parties are trying to turn your lean into a bow all the way down to algorithms of social media and the way YouTube is wired and how people want to provoke, stoke fear in your heart. If you get scared, then you just keep clicking and clicking and you go down this rabbit hole of seeing everybody else who's not part of this echo chamber again is your, is your enemy. And I just, that is, I think that that is a, 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 well, I, it's, it's serious danger to the mission of the church. And we saw it in 2016 and especially 2020 when, you know, the blood of Christ was not strong enough to bind churches together, um, you know, <laughs> apparently, because people were just churches were divided all over the place over stuff that didn't have anything to do with, like, doctrine, you know, um, hmm. or even really Christian practice had to do with who you're voting for. So um, I want people to be very suspicious, Christians to be very suspicious about how easily we can get sucked into giving our allegiance to a political party or any kind of tribe in such a way that will dilute your allegiance to, to Jesus would be one of the areas I explore. Preston, uh, you have a conference coming up, Theology in the Raw conference on, on exiles. And, uh, you, 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 you engage a, a cross section of millennials, Gen Z's and younger. Uh, I think that's a message the younger generation will buy, but the hmm. older generation is somewhat uh, more <laughs> hardened. What do you have a comment on that? Because our church has got to start somewhere, and I think maybe before they walk out the door, mm -hmm. start dealing with the young people and talk through these issues. What do you think about that? Man, that's a that's a good question. I, it is a, it it does tend to be a generational thing, and uh, I, I don't know. I don't I don't know if I have any secret weapons to rhetorical weapons to pull out that can convince somebody of that. I mean, I tease out stuff on social media sometimes to be provocative. You know, I think I said, like, if you're, if your political favorite political tribe is, uh, is, is not helping you love your neighbor and enemy more then that political tribe is standing between you and Jesus, which I think is a basic statement, but people even argue against that. Like, no, like, I'm like, see, like, <laughs> like, so I, I don't know. Yeah, it is hard to get. I don't know, Fitch, you're a year or two older than I am. Maybe you can give me some insight on how I can reach the older, uh, the older. I, you know, I, I because I go, I, I swim in very different ecclesiological circles. And, and I guess I am 
I assume that anybody older than me is going to be really entrenched in their views, but I, I've I've met so many exceptions to that rule. It actually does give me give me hope. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, cool. Thanks for the one or two years older comment. <laughs> uh, remember that, Mike Moore. Yeah, uh, I will. Very generous. <laughs> uh, uh, you say uh, we 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 only got time for like one or two yep. more. You say turn off Babylon news, yeah. folks. Hear yeah. that Babylon news. I sometimes wonder if we just preached that. <laughs> Uh, we might get our churches out of the mess they're in. Do you, give us a comment on what you're trying to push for there. Yeah, it, it's just been so proven over and over and over again, and everybody knows it anecdotally, that many mainstream news outlets are driven by propaganda. They want your money, they want your attention, and they know if they can stoke fear in your heart, they will get it. That's just not even a... That's like two plus two equals four. Like, we all know that. I, I think we know that, you know? But people still just will have this steady drip of this very pr just propaganda-oriented uh, news. I am not arguing that we need to not be informed. And that's where I do say there, there are some outlets out there that or there are some means by which we can stay informed without having people grab at our hearts and tug it in a certain direction that's away from the our <laughs> allegiance to Jesus. So, um yeah, I don't know if that will if people are sucked into that kind of vortex and they're addicted to kind of this side of the aisle, that side. I don't know if I'm going to convince anybody. So I might be just be preaching to the choir that actually agrees with me on that one. But it, at least I just I don't know. I have to at least say it and acknowledge it. So um, yeah. is there a text out there that says to, where Jesus says, turn off Fox News or <laughs> turn off CNN? Can you give me some help here if I for pastors who want to preach on this? Oh. You caught me off guard, Fitch. I don't know. Are you thinking? Are you all thinking right, of a text? Right. I wish I had it. I'm sure there's some. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying yeah. we got to preach the gospel here, and somebody's got to preach the gospel into the addiction to the news cycles and these siloing of news cycles. Yeah. Uh, I want you to comment on enemy love, and then I'm going to turn it over to Mike for some final comments. Tie this all together, Mike. Bring it home. Land the plane. Enemy <laughs> love. Enemy love. Uh, I mean this. This, when Jesus said, love your enemies, in Matthew 5, I mean, that became, I call it, it, you know, it became the John 3.16 of the early church. It is, according to the um, writings that we have access to, um, it is the most quoted verse in the first 300 years of Christianity. It is one of, if not the thing that made Christianity distinct. And in this kind of upside down, unexpected way, it was the thing that attracted so many people to Christianity too. Like they embodied and practiced enemy love and they didn't do so. You know, people like, well, it's easy for you to say you're a privileged guy. I live in Boise, Idaho. Well, it's like, okay, fair enough. They weren't <laughs> They practice. Mm -hmm. The people who clung to this verse had the sword at their neck when they were doing so. So, um, yeah, I, I, uh, again, if you're a political lean or your political allegiance is causing you or hindering you or, or dampening out your passion to love your enemy who might be on a different political side, then it's, it's, in, it's all, again, there's no two ways around it. It's standing in the way of uh, a primary aspect of your discipleship towards Jesus. So I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I think, and I think we all know it too. That's the thing. I I'll listen to every now and then. I'll I'll, I'll go into like mainstream. You know, I'll go. You know, I'll listen to like you know Ben Shapiro on this side. I listen to somebody on the left. You know, and it's like 
oh, if I didn't know any better, within five seconds, I'd want to go out and kill somebody on the other side of the political aisle. Like, it's just, it's so <laughs> obvious. It's just so designed that way, you know? So, um, yeah, I, and I also think, I think, I don't know. I, I do think the church has a wide open lane right now to demonstrate unity in the midst of differences where we can like what if we actually modeled what it looks like to have good intelligent intellectually invigorating conversations with people we disagree with while humanizing them while honoring them and their viewpoint while not de you know dehumanizing them while not ripping on them while not straw manning their argument or how could you and like what if we actually had engaged in that kind of dialogue as the church saying hey we are thoughtful we are diverse but man, we love each other. We we will we will die for each other, um, and, and we're actually representing others correctly. And we 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 it's a moral mandate for us to dignify another human being, even if we disagree with them. Like if we actually could embody that, I think that's actually really attractive. I, I think people would look at that saying, "Wow!" I think that would probably reverse some of the really negative reputation that the church has. But hmm. we have that wide open lane. We could do it, whether we're going to do it or not. I don't know. I am a little more pessimistic the older I get, but. <laughs> amen and amen to that. Uh, Fitch always wants me to summarize the podcast at the very end, and it's always inadequate, so I'm not going to do it. But what, all, but what I'll just say as a summary is, people, if you're listening, go buy the book. Uh, Exiles, The Church in the Shadow of Empire. Preston, it's good to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm I'm honored that you guys even read the book. So that's, that's, uh, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I really do think folks, uh, uh, Preston's talking about a moment for the church, this approach to being the people of God in, in the United States, and Canada, uh, it's, it's, it's time has come and Preston, I hope your book leads us into that because these kind of ideas, this voice, this stream is not being heard in evangelicalism. I don't think I've seen anything on Christianity Today that remotely understands what we're talking about. Christianity Today, if you're hearing this, get busy, do a review of Preston's book. Let's get this out in the open. So, so great to have you here. Uh, Chaz, you did a great <laughs> job on technology. Uh, Mike Moore, that was a terrible <laughs> summary, but we love you anyways. Uh, and thanks for being on here again, Preston. Folks, it's Theology on Mission podcast. Give us a review uh, at your platform, wherever you listen. Help us spread the word about Theology on Mission podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week, same uh, time, platform, wherever you're listening. Until then, it's Dave Fitch and Mike Moore. Over and out. <laughs> <laughs>